It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's this phrase color revolution that's been bouncing around right-wing media circles for the past few months. The idea of a color revolution in its original form was that the people, you know, often students, would come out, they would wear the same color, and they would push back against fraudulent elections in authoritarian regimes. That's Renee Doresta. You can think of her as a detective who tracks down misinformation online. She's based at Stanford, and she's part of a group of researchers who are following attempts to delegitimize the 2020 elections. They're called the Election Integrity Partnership. And then the term came to be kind of co-opted by Russia and China, which reframed it to mean to claim that those student-driven actions, that those popular movements were in fact secretly led by the U.S. deep state, by the CIA. You can guess where this whole color revolution thing is going, right? And that was the sense in which these conservative um, activists in the U.S. were using it to say that the U.S. deep state was trying to conspire with the Democrats to keep the president from being rightfully elected. She says warnings of a deep state color revolution against President Trump went from Russian state media and a few blogs to former Trump speechwriter Darren Beatty. Here he is on a podcast with Steve Bannon. The force opposed to him is deeply embedded within our national security state. And they're running the same playbook on him that they do on all these other countries. And And so you'll see it moving both through the official channels, if you will, through the broadcast media channels, and you'll also see it moving through the social media channels. You know, in this particular case, that claim wound up on Tucker Carlson. For our viewers who are not familiar with the color revolutions in Eastern Europe. Darren Beatty was his guest. State as clearly as you can what you think is going on right now in this election. What's the end game for Democrats? The end game for Renee is to try to have an election where misinformation does as little damage as possible. And it's getting down to the wire. Today on the show, it's almost election day, and the lies and conspiracy theories are everywhere. We'll tell you what to look out for in the homestretch, how to fight it, and what the platforms are doing to protect the truth in this most consequential election. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
For months now, Renee and her colleagues at the Election Integrity Partnership have been studying the movement of misinformation about the election. We're looking specifically at things related to voting, procedural misinformation about ballots, about where to vote, when to vote, how to vote, if voting is being suppressed. You know, so that, that's the area that we've chosen to focus on. Renee and her team collect viral stories. They funnel them into a tracking system, then try to answer a series of questions. Where did the content come from? What's the narrative? How did it spread? And how fast is it spreading? And with that body of data over the last couple months, uh, we started paying attention to what narratives were most prevalent, what narratives went the farthest, uh, and then how might these narratives reappear on Election Day. And it's not just Election Day. Renee is already seeing viral narratives unfold in early voting. I saw some um, videos of police officers taking PPE from a polling place in Brooklyn that that went viral over the over the weekend, I think it was, or maybe it was yesterday. Yeah, I saw that too. They just seized our PPE that we're handing to voters. And there is a lot of tension on the left in particular related to police officers. And so that narrative of a police officer doing something that they weren't supposed to uh, was read as, oh, they're in the tank for Trump. Look what they did on the first day of early voting. And, you know, there are certain laws about where you have to be, how far you have to be from the door of a polling place related to electioneering. And it wasn't really clear from the video whether this fell into that category, whether this was electioneering, whether this was just an unfortunate encounter that got heated where the police officers overreacted and took stuff away. There were a lot of things about it that weren't made clear until I think about 24 hours later when the the official channels for the police precinct that was involved said, uh, actually, the officer was wrong and here is, you know, here's what should have happened instead. And in those moments, there's really no way to fact check. There's no way to know what actually happened in that situation until, you know, until the facts are revealed a couple hours to maybe even a day later. And so the story continues to go viral uh, before the facts are known. You can have well-intentioned misinformation where the information might be wrong, but the intent is innocent. Or disinformation where the intent is to mislead. And it's really hard as an internet consumer to know what's what. Misinformation, disinformation, or something real. Renee says, tread carefully. Take a second before you share that post from a friend of a friend. Not just now, but after Election Day, too. Everybody's got their video camera in their pocket, uh, which means that there's going to be tons and tons and tons of these primary source videos purportedly documenting misbehavior, malfeasance, bad poll workers, you name it. And they're all going to be strung together into what's going to feel like an overwhelming swell of evidence that, you know, for the left, the vote was suppressed. For the right, illegal ballots were cast. And I think that's going to be one of the key challenges to contend with is there will be machines that don't work. There will be encounters between people that are hostile and inappropriate and possibly illegal. We have to expect that in a country with over 100,000 polling locations, things are going to go wrong. They always have gone wrong, in fact. It's just that they're isolated, disparate events, and we have to be careful not to read too much into them uh, to construct a narrative of, uh, that more broadly delegitimizes the election. And if you are the person recording something, be safe. You can legitimize your content with GPS shots without edits in between, and any information that identifies where you are and who's involved. Because Renee's research shows that this stuff is going to fly around at a pace we've never seen before. 
you know, maybe it's because I had a baby not too long ago, but I keep thinking of all of this as like what to expect when you're expecting this yeah. information. <laughs> it's not it's not a question of if, but a, a question of when. Right. We all know that this is going to be a uncertain period. We all know that there are going to be a lot of opportunities for videos and footage that people take to be twisted or used inappropriately, for real incidents to be taken out of context and put in the context of a vast, broad conspiracy to erode confidence in the legitimacy of the election overall. We know that there are going to be candidates who are going to claim victory and then insinuate that it is being stolen from them. There's one line that is in one of your reports that kind of startled me. And it just feels like it's about the scope of all of this. You guys wrote, regardless of origins or intent, these attacks on the perceived integrity of the 2020 election represent a threat to democracy itself. That feels dire. Are you frightened? Yes, I, I think several of us who've worked on this have, this is not our first election. Um, we've seen, you know, we, we worked the 2018 midterms. We've seen elections in a number of other countries at this point and how social media narratives uh, figure in there. It's just that this particular election is incredibly high stakes. And so I think the threat to democracy is is in part based on the idea that a democracy implies an informed electorate. Now, that's not how it manifests all the time. You know, we're not going to be naive and say that in the olden days, everybody was wildly informed and then now they're not. That's not true. But people were not to the same extent quite so actively disinformed. Democracy also relies on us believing the results. And if you have massive delegitimization, if the media and social media is used in advance for months to preemptively delegitimize the results of the election by saying that any isolated ballot incident is evidence of massive voter fraud or any protest in the streets is evidence of a vast color revolution coup, um, that means that a large, large percentage of people who engage with those stories are not going to accept the outcome. After the break, who's responsible for stopping misinformation anyway? This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It was good to talk to Renee about how to deal with all the viral voting videos coming our way. But what individuals like you and I do is only part of the equation. The other part is what social media companies do or don't do, to stop the spread of this stuff. Since the start of the pandemic, companies have been more muscular about policing content, adding labels like disputed to posts, asking users to actually read a piece before they share it, or taking down content altogether. Everything from healthcare misinformation to Holocaust denial. Now, this new hands-on approach is being applied to the presidential election. And we just got a taste of how this might go. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Post publishes what I think in the headline even referred to as a kind of smoking gun. That's Justin Hendricks. He teaches at NYU. And he wrote about this story, the supposed smoking gun, that played out very publicly. And, you know, kind of immediately it, it, you know, it felt very familiar. You've got this story about a laptop technician who's acquired Hunter Biden's laptop and come across this sort of uh, material on it that's concerned him. And he's taken it to... Uh, the FBI, and somehow also to Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani. Tonight, we are following two major stories. There are serious questions for Joe Biden this evening following the publication of emails allegedly belonging to his son, Hunter. And then, you know, uh, everybody kind of goes into the typical uh, mode of concern. Um, By mid-morning, you've got journalists and analysts digging through the Post story beginning to take apart the claims in it, already raising lots of problems. It's a story raising concerns about whether it's real or just designed to sow confusion in the final weeks of the election. And then this other thing happens, which is kind of extraordinary. This uh, Facebook PR executive just takes to Twitter and announces that Facebook is going to reduce the propagation of the story. Then later, Twitter took even harsher action, uh, disabling the link to the story. Various personalities from uh, the White House press secretary to, you know, journalists and others attempted to share it and and found their accounts uh, suspended. 24 hours later, of course, we had calls for testimony on Capitol Hill. To come before this committee and the American people and explain why Twitter is abusing their corporate power to silence the press and to cover up... Letters from uh, the House uh, uh, Judiciary... We had attempts to post the article on a government website, which also got banned by Twitter. Just an extraordinary set of circumstances that unfolded. I'm also really fascinated by the fact that Twitter changed its mind. Jack Dorsey, the CEO, tweets, our communication around our actions on, he's referring to the article, was not great. And blocking URL sharing via tweet or DM with zero context as to why we're blocking, unacceptable. Boy, this is an about face. Yeah, and it it all happened very, very quickly. By late that night, uh, you had a a person with the title of uh, legal policy, trust and safety, posting on Twitter that the company had had essentially made a mistake, that it had failed to update 2018 protocol on how to handle hacked materials due to a, a kind of like oversight. And to me, that points to the way the platforms are still thinking about this. It's a protocol. It's a, a kind of if-then statement. Hmm. You know, if I see this example, I do this. If I see that example, I do this other thing. The kind of goal is to reduce this to 
a repetitive set of rules that you know don't require a lot of ethical consideration or uh, contextual analysis. Well, now that we're seeing the CEO and other executives kind of raked over the coals by the right and and Republicans in Congress, it doesn't seem like they did a great job with declaring their responsibilities here. Even for uh, folks who believe the platforms should do more to contain disinformation and to, uh, you know, handle the spread of lies, um, this is a kind of concerning situation. And you saw other experts immediately come to the fore asking questions about the handling of this. And I'm also very concerned about it. You know, one of the things that's at stake in this election, yet again, is the sort of legitimacy of the government, the legitimacy of institutions, and our ability to kind of have a, a discourse. And when these platforms seemingly take decisions that look like they are decided in a dark room someplace, and that they may carry a kind of political intent, that really does affect, I believe, the sort of sense of legitimacy that people feel about the discourse. This year, because of overwhelming early voting and absentee ballots, there's a decent chance that Americans won't have clear results on election night, which is why people like Renee and Justin are hyper-focused on how the spread of information will be managed after the election. One of the biggest concerns is a premature claim of victory from a candidate or their supporters. Facebook and Twitter have put out policies specifically around false claims of victory, YouTube has no stated policy yet on that. Reddit has no stated policy yet on that. TikTok, interestingly, does have a policy on how it will reduce content discoverability or you know, redirect search results. But you know, this is a really interesting question. What is a false claim of victory? You know, there's a lot of ways that one could craft a tweet that walks right up to the line of saying, I've won and my opponent should concede without quite saying it. And whether Every one of those claims will be uh, removed en masse, uh, whether every influencer will be muzzled, whether every fact will be checked. is sort of impossible to imagine. Apart from premature claims of victory, what other types of content are you going to be watching for? Many months ago, the, the Trump campaign started to recruit for what it calls the army for Trump. Looking for ways to help Team Trump? Working for the president at the polls during early vote or on election day is a great way to ensure a fair and honest election. The goal of these, uh, this army uh, essentially is to, to go and observe uh, elections taking place. Our election day operations are designed to make sure that everyone who is legally entitled to vote has the opportunity to vote once. And a lot of journalists have focused on the possibility that this is intimidation and then it's meant to sort of physically intimidate people from participating in the voting process. But there's something else going on here, and it's kind of come to the fore in, in various articles and reporting on the way these uh, volunteers are being trained, and they're now seeing some of it in practice at this point. They've been asked essentially to go and collect video clips, photographs, um, other artifacts um, of suspected voter fraud. So they're being told by the, by the campaign, this is part of what you're meant to do. Pull out the smartphone, film and photograph and record everything that you see. 
And when you look at that, you see what's happening around the country. And the Election Integrity Partnership has a great case study about a case of pictures of ballots in a dumpster in Sonoma County that emerged on social media, quickly got pushed through the right-wing media ecosystem, and became a kind of narrative around a ballot fraud before, of course, being completely debunked just a couple of days later. I think we can expect that in large quantity, unfortunately. You can hear the voter fraud narrative here in an MSNBC interview when former White House press aide Hogan Gidley tries to claim that evidence of fraud was showing up in local news stories. You, you, you can't deny what you've seen on television in all of these local markets where people are finding ballots in trash cans, people are finding ballots in... It sounded like he was talking about a communication strategy. Um, There's plenty of evidence in the local markets of voter fraud and ballot fraud. Your local markets, NBC affiliates, are reporting on this in all types of areas across this country. This is rampant. Everyone sees that. So I think they're anticipating that. Lots of this evidence bubbling up and uh, fitting into the national narrative um, of voter fraud that, of course, we've heard the president uh, spouting for the last several months. Is it going too far to say that that sounds like content that is designed to go viral? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I reckon that's the big problem here. Um, you know, you've got a real effort to produce what looks like completely authentic user-generated content from from normal folks that will first circulate and propagate in local contexts. I think the, the hope is that it finds its way into local news reporting. And within a few days, you can kind of see people connecting the dots and saying, oh, you know, there are enough examples of this that there's a, uh, a national story here. I guess just one last question for you. When you wake up on the morning of November 4th, or if you ever went to sleep, what's the first thing you're going to look for? I think I'll be looking for fringe cases of communications that represent the real problems in the system that we've got. Pieces of information that are bubbling up from users across the country about purported voter fraud, the kind of uh, uh, viral phenomena that we can expect to see, pictures and videos and things of that nature, that while in most part, I'm sure will be not actual evidence of the sorts of fraud they're purporting to represent and will eventually be debunked, I'll be looking for those examples, those things that really are using the platform in the moment to spread a very dangerous and delegitimizing point of view. Justin Hendricks, thank you so much. Thank you. Justin Hendricks is a research scientist at NYU and the founder of Tech Policy Press. Renee DiResta is the research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. She's a member of the Election Integrity Partnership. That's our show for today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Allison Benedict and Tori Bosch. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're interested in learning more about content moderation and other tech-related speech issues, check out Future Tense's free speech project, which you can find at slate.com slash future tense. Have a great weekend. 
Don't spend too much time online. And Mary Harris will be back in your ears on Monday. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. <laughs>